This is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and we are smack dab in the middle of this series through the book of Revelation. Today, Pastor Alex is going to be unpacking the end of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 as Jesus gives John a window into what was happening in heavenly places during the birth of Jesus on earth. We're excited for this. Pastor Alex does a great job communicating in this. I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're challenged and I hope that you're convicted. Without further ado, this is another week in our Revelation series. If you guys want to turn in your Bibles or in the, the um, note Bible that you've picked up, we're in uh, Revelations and we're, we're going to uh, go ahead and unpack um, Revelation 12. And so we have uh, Katerina and Nadia here. And it's, it's so cool how God works. Um, this past week, I was able to go back to my elementary school where I graduated. Uh, I did the math 26 years ago from grade eight. And I was able just to talk about what God has done in my life and the faithfulness of God. It's so important that we look back in our lives and see God's hand. Um, it's just awesome. Um, and so what's really cool is that um, when we moved here, my wife and I moved to St. Catharines 10 years ago, and uh, Katerina and Nadia were, were in the kids' ministry that we were a part of, and Nadia was in grade two. Uh, no, Nadia was in SK, and Katerina was in grade two. And it was, uh, it was just, it's just so great. One of the greatest honors I have as a youth pastor is to see young people grow up in their faith and stay faithful to the Lord. It's the greatest gift that I can have. And so it's just cool to be able to partner with you. So if you turn to uh, Revelations 12, we're going to start one verse um, before, so 11 verse 19, I think, and uh, that's where we're going to start. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was, <laughs> she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto even death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Awesome. Yeah, you can give him a hand. You can. <laughs> Let's bow our heads before we try and <laughs> unpack this. King Jesus, what a vision. The words of man are not enough to unpack this. God, the, the imagery is so deep that we waste our time to just engage our mind to get an answer. We place ourselves under your scripture and ask for your spirit of truth to lead us into truth. Even in complex book like Revelation, Jesus promised that the spirit of truth would lead us into truth. And so we submit to you, Holy Spirit, and your teaching today, no matter how hard it might be for us, we ask for your guiding. We ask for your teaching, your correction, your empowering. We need you, Jesus. Amen. Wow, what a vision. <laughs> You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, oh, yes, okay, cool, awesome, this is your life. No, John is sitting here on the Isle of Patmos and he's got this vision and it just keeps coming. Like, just keeps coming to him. Like, that must be a lot. It's a lot to process as we're reading, right? Can you imagine getting that vision and then penning it? Must have been just, just it would be interesting and amazing just to sit there and watch him process this, to get the revelation and then write it down. Revelation, we have, to couple, we have to remember a couple things about Revelation. That again, that this is a revelation. It is an unveiling. It's not, remember how we, we understand apocalypse as almost apocalypse now, right? Like this like doomsday. But that's kind of, we've redefined the term. We need to understand that it's, it's much better biblically to understand that Revelation is an unveiling. Revelation is an unveiling. Apocalypse is an unveiling of what's going on in the supernatural. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to understand that we are being invited into something much deeper, an unveiling of what's going on in the supernatural realm, in the future, but in the present. And so here's what we do. We come into chapter 12, 11, 19, into 12, and we understand this, that we are walking into the third window, or another scholar calls it an act, which I kind of like better. So act one, we see that um, the throne room of 
heaven. We see Christ enthroned. The ultimate reality that's going on right now is that he's worshiped. We sang for about 30 minutes. There is no ending to the song of Christ's worship. It just continues. That is the ultimate reality that we see in the first act of Revelation. Then we see second, the opening of the seal. And every act opens with the word opening. And so we see in number uh, chapter 11, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now to us, we don't really understand the imagery of temple because we don't have temples, but we need to understand that for Jewish readers, this is a big deal. The temple is a big deal. It's where God's presence rests, right? That's how they understand it. It's the earthly dwelling place of God's temple. And so he's saying not the temple here where God's presence is. He's actually seeing where God is, the temple in heaven, and is becoming unveiled to him. Remember Revelation? Unveiled. It's apocalypse. The Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? What is that? That is where God's presence rests on earth. So he's saying, we are being able to see in the temple of heaven, the resting place of God in the heavenlies. Then it says flashing of lightnings, rumbling, pearls. How many of you guys um, remember kind of putting kids to bed sometimes. I see a little baby there. You know, you got to figure out this lullaby, right? This, this kind of routine. How many of you guys figured out a routine of putting kids to bed or even for yourself? You have, a, you have a little bit of a routine to get yourself to bed. I remember for my, um, my daughters, they were all different routines. Eloise, our first daughter, um, we had no idea what we were doing. Any first parents in the house being like, eh, I don't know. Actually, let's all be honest. None of us know what we're doing. <laughs> You get two, you're like, yeah, don't know. You're so different than the last one. Three, you're like, okay, I got, nope, don't have this actually. Until your grandparent, then you got it down. My mom tells me exactly what I should do all the time. It's great. <laughs> and so with Ellie, we had to, uh, we had this routine and then it changes all the time. Like these beings just keep changing. It's so frustrating. Now, remember, we could put her down to nap, and it was super easy. We would swaddle her up. Her arms would be in there. We'd lay her down. She'd go to bed. And then at nighttime, we weren't swaddling her. We just putting her down, and she's freaking out. And we're like, oh, worst parents ever. Where's the book? We couldn't figure it out. And then I had this God moment where he just endowed me with a perfect fatherhood. Um, and I said, babe, the only difference is that we give her a blanket, and she kind of sucks on it. Like, let's just give her a blanket. And so if you know Ellie, you know that um, she's always sucked on a blanket. She's always, actually, I'm moving into the phase. She's turning eight. She probably would not want me to do, I'm going to have to start asking for permission for this, but shh, don't tell her. Um, and so she, uh, she would always suck on a blanket. And so, boom, worked. Then Addie came along, tried it. Nope. Couldn't figure her out. All she wanted was a bunny. So funny. She just wants this one particular bunny. We've bought other ones, same color. And I try to trick her at night. I'm like, here's your bunny. She's she, like at, at two years old, three years old. She'd be like, she, it's pitch black. She'd feel it. She'd throw it. Goes, nope. I'm like, how do you possibly? She like rubbed the nose. I started learning. She'd rub the nose and she knew. Then we get, then we get our Rosie, our little spunky one. 
And, and she, she has this routine. It's, it's, it's so interesting. They're so different. And we had to figure out the lullaby and with her just lay her down and just throw the blanket over her face like 10 times. And then you just back out. <laughs> These are breathable blankets, just so you know. And then just back out of the room, close the door and she'd go to bed. She's like four now. It doesn't work like that. Um, but each of them needed a lullaby. And it's so interesting. This text is like a wake-up call. I heard one pastor, um, he's a missionary in, in Iran, and he was, he was saying, you know, when I look at the Western church, it's almost like there's this demonic lullaby that just keeps on quieting the church. And with our air-conditioned rooms and our cakes and our parties and our T-shirts, we just get lulled to sleep. And we forget that there's a war. And it's so interesting, and we can point our finger at this pastor, but he was listing in this interview friends, family members, church members that have died for the gospel. So you kind of have to be quiet and say, yeah, maybe you're right. This text, Revelation, is a wake-up call. It's an alarming going, church, wake up, we're at war. And we need to realize that we need to live with an intensity for the kingdom of God. We need to turn off the Netflix. We need to turn off the different social medias. We need to turn off those things because they are lulling us to sleep and we are living like the world but going to church on Sunday. Revelation is a wake-up call to the church. That church is being persecuted. They know the cost of what it means to follow the gospel. We need to be reminded that there's a cost to following Christ Jesus, amen? And that is not cheap and that is not easy. So here's what I'm going to do. If you're taking notes, go ahead and take down. We're going to do three by three by three, okay? So we're going to have nine points. You're going to get out of here. I don't know what time. No, I'm just kidding. It's going to be fast. First is this. We have three main characters in this chapter. Then we have three scenes, and then we have three practical steps that we can take from this book. Hasn't Andrew done a great job in this, in this uh, book? I appreciate that he gave me the easiest chapter in this whole thing. And it still was not easy. I'm reading commentary on commentary going, oh, okay, okay, I'm a dummy. <laughs> like, I didn't see that before. <laughs> and so it's just awesome that Pastor Andrew is, has taken this on. You know, many churches, uh, most churches I've been at have always done kind of like, the summer's been like a, a super easy, easy one. And Andrew's like, you know what we're going to do this year? I'm like, sure. What's it going to be? Something easy, a little topical? He's like, revelation. I'm like, I know you want to keep it at one service, but we probably want people in those services. <laughs> but hasn't it been great just to see God's work through his word? Often we hide from some of those more dif difficult texts, right? We stay in the ones we like. Let's stay in Romans. Right? Let's stay in Ephesians, which, by the way, we're still in. Um, <laughs> it's just paused, yeah. Three main characters. Here we go. 
First, the woman, verse one. Verse one, it says this, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, like close your eyes and just see this. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and with a cry out in birth pains and agony giving birth. Whoa, who is this woman? Well, interestingly, obviously we would read this and right away, as you read this text, we think of Mary. But Mary is not just what we see. We actually see that there's more going on. We see that it's Israel as well. Look what he says. He says, clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and with a head, a crown on her head, 12 stars. Now, when you read it, you jump, your thoughts jump to Genesis 37. It jumps you back to where Joseph has this dream. And what's happening in this dream? Oh, well, like any youngest child, he stands up and says, oh, I had this dream, older siblings. You were all bowing down to me. Even the sun and the moon, which represented father and mother, they are bowing down. And so what would, what would understand, and there were 11 stars, and with a 12th star would have been Joseph himself. And it points to that that is the representation of Israel. So these are the people, what, what John is saying is that this is Israel. He's pointing back to Genesis 37, 9, and he's sharing the fact that this is Israel. It's Mary, it's the people of God before and after Christ. So it's Israel, but it's also more than Israel. It's the church. Isn't that interesting? But how do we get there? Verse 17 shows us that it's the, the church as well. Go flip with me to verse 17 if you can. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Like if we're only talking about Mary, are we talking about Jesus's brothers and sisters chasing up? No, 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 there's more meaning to this. The rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's pointing, pointing to that this is not just Israel, but it's also the church after Christ, those who follow Christ. So we see that the woman is Mary, is Israel, and is a sign of the church all at once. Interesting. Number two, the dragon. Now this, this passage, even as a kid growing up in church, I didn't read much of the Bible, but I read this passage because it was kind of cool. I was like, this is, uh, okay, so, so this is a seven-headed dragon? Oh, like as a 10-year-old as a boy, I was like, this is like a comic book. And so let's read it here. Verse three. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. How many of you guys know what a diadem is? Go ahead and raise your hand if you know what a diadem. Raise it up in the air. Diadem, diadem. Okay, I know who read Harry Potter. There you go. 
<laughs> ah, just messing with you. Just having fun. Okay, so let's, let's really think about this. Visualize that, right? For us, we're like, okay, you know, what do you jump ulti- ultimately to? Oh, yeah, that's the devil. No, 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 we have to remember the context of who's reading this. Right away, they would have thought when they read this of the dragon that represented the embodiment of chaos and evil, which in the Bible was a Leviathan and a behemoth, but also in Greek mythology, they had them. In Roman, in the ancient world, they were all represented and he's speaking to this culture, right? We have to remember that this Bible was written to a real culture. It's reaching into Roman culture. It's reaching into Greek culture. It's reaching into real cultures. And so this, this dragon that he's showing, he actually is giving purpose with. And so we need to understand that these are representing the evil and the embodiment of evil. Red, what does that mean? It's not just a picture. It's not just a color that he picked. Red is, an, is actually, he's, it's to make us think that he is, he is bloody. He's covered in blood. It's red. He is a killer. He is scary. Seven. Seven is the number of completion. Head. Head means authority. This picture that he's giving us is that this dragon has complete authority. Now, just so we know, that's authority given from God. But he's, right now, he has authority. Then we see 10. It's another number for completion. Horns. Horns are a symbol of strength and power. He has complete strength and power. Diadems. Those are crowns. Tiaras. Wealth. This is a, this is a dragon that has wealth. There is nothing earthly speaking that is outside of his reach. Martin Luther talks that there is actually no equal on earth to this dragon. So we see this picture of the dragon. Who is this dragon? Then we jump to verse nine and we learn very quickly what our, what our modern understanding of the church is, that this dragon, this is the devil. Here's what he says in verse nine. And then the great dragon was thrown down. The, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the, the whole world. This right here, when you read it, the vision that you get, the place you point to is right away you point back to the Garden of Eden, right? Where the, where the great serpent was and deceived him, Eve and Adam, Right? This is what we see. And so we realize that the dragon is the devil, the serpent of old. It points to the prophecy right away when humanity sinned. God says this in uh, Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Interesting, these three main characters, okay? Oh, I guess two main characters. Every time John has talked about them, introduced them, he's used a word, sign. They are a sign. There is no woman that will be clothed in the sun. There is no woman that actually has a crown with stars in it. 
This is a sign pointing to something. There is no actual dragon with physical seven heads and ten horns. It's a sign pointing to something. But then he introduces the next character. He says, the male child. The child is the reality. The signs point to something. The child is the reality that we're looking for. And who is the child? Verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is this child? This child is Jesus, the Messiah, Christ. How do we know this? Well, he uses a term here that would point us back to a messianic uh, Psalms in Psalms 2. So if you want to turn with me to Psalms 2, we're going to read a little bit. We're going to see how it talks about the Messiah. Bear with me. Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us boast or let us burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them. Then he, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decrees. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Here, verse nine. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. This church that read this, this first century church, they would have gone right to that Psalms that they would have memorized and they would have seen this child that they're talking about is Christ. So those are the three main characters of this. We've got the woman representing Mary, the the people of God before and after Christ, the dragon who is the devil, and the child who is Jesus. We have to remember when we see, we're, we're coming into the third act, right? It's almost like an intermission. We've got act one. We've got act two that we've talked about, the opening of the seal. Then we've got this intermission. They're not happening chronologically. Sometimes we read it and we think it's chronological. We need to understand that this is happening what hap- what's happening is that he's having a vision and you're hearing it as he has the vision. He's writing it down as he has the vision, not chronologically. So now we have three scenes, ready? And they are not chronological. We, the first scene is this, verse one through six. And if you read it, you can't help but think about the Christmas story. Now granted, it's not the Christmas story we put on our lawn. That would be pretty awesome. That would be pretty odd. People would be like, 
Like, like we really have to understand, look at the vision that's happening here, okay? This woman is, is giving birth. I've had the pleasure of being there three times while giving birth. I was not giving birth. I almost delivered my last child on the phone with 911. They're like, okay, so here's the list of what you need. Got it, got it, got it. Had it all because Jess prepared it earlier. But had it, and they're like, look, you need a bobby pin. I'm like, oh, frantically, right? Like a, like a dad would do. I'm like running around like, ah, oh, can't find a bobby pin. He's like, it's not important. Don't worry about it. I'm like, what are you? Anyways, not important. But I was super frustrated with him. And then I go, he's like, okay, so now you need to tell me if you can see the head. I said, oh, what? <laughs> Clarify again. <laughs> with my first child, um, you're supposed to have two midwives. They promise you, they promise you guys. Well, I guess you two women. But they promise you that you will have two midwives there. But there were lots of babies happening at this point, And so we had one midwife. So I'm just sitting there. She's amazing. I'm like just reclining on a, on a chair, right, babe? <laughs> Texting all my friends, my baby's coming. <laughs> it's a true story. Um, and then the midwife, she's like superwoman. It's amazing. And she's taking care of my wife, like just great. And then she's like, hey, I need you to help me. I'm like, yep, water. What do you need? She's like, stand here. Let her push against you. I said, like, what do you mean? Yeah, she's going to put her leg and push against you. I'm like, oh boy. My plan was to be right around the head and supportive. You can do this, baby. You're right. You can. And so there we were, both times. Didn't go as planned, did they, babe? For either of us. <laughs> but this is, the, this is the Christmas story. And here's what I need you to see. John, it's interesting, right? The Gospel of John doesn't actually write out a nativity story. Go to the beginning, go to John 1, and look. Every other Gospel writes the nativity story, but John doesn't. And then he comes back, he gets this vision, and it's the nativity story. It's just interesting to me. And here's the vision that he gets. This mother is giving birth. And who's catching? Is it a midwife? Nope. Is it Joseph? Nope. It's this dragon that's over her, ready to catch. Wow, what a scene. Put that on the lawn. <laughs> Peterson says this, um, Eugene Peterson. He says, it is St. John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of St. Matthew and St. Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, not domesticated into worldliness. Those are interesting terms when we think about what Christmas is, right? Not domesticated into worldliness. This is not the nativity story we've we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than just wonder. It excites evil. But why does it excite evil? Well, it excites evil because evil knows what it means. 
he understands what this birth means. It means the end of his rule. Amen? Isn't it so interesting? Look at the pictures. The picture that God's giving us of his kingdom versus the kingdom of darkness. His kingdom is gentle, lowly, loving, represented in a child. What's more endearing than a little child? The kingdom of darkness is represented by hatred and anger, this dragon that is terrifying and filling of awe and wrath. This should speak to us, church, of how we should live our lives, right? We should be represented by the gentle and the lowly and the loving, not the anger and the wrath. One is the kingdom of darkness and one is the kingdom of light. So first, scene one is this, the dragon's offensive if you're looking for a title. It's the Christmas story. It pushes you to Revelation, or sorry, to Matthew 2. Scene two, the war in heaven. Subtitle, one on earth. So this battle is between Matthew and the devil. Here's, here's a key, key component. Often we think that Jesus and the devil are at war. No, it's never depicted like that because Jesus is God all-powerful. There's no battle there. Who does he war against? He wars against Michael, who is actually the representation, the guardian angel of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we see that these two are in battle with each other. So the war is waged where? Where does it say it's waged? Heaven. Heaven is the place where the battle is waged. But where is the victory won? Let's look. The victory is won on earth. How is the victory won? It's won through the birth, the life, the teaching, the ministry, the death, resurrection and ascension of this child. You know what's crazy in this verse here? Look at, look at verse um, five. They say something really interesting at the end of it. So it talks about the, the iron rod. Then it says, but her child was caught up to be to God and to his throne. What a talks about birth and then caught up to the throne. What is, what's going on there? That, that is actually a summary of the gospel. What he's, what he's doing there is he's just quickly in one sentence. It's like, it's like any of these theological tests that I've ever taken. And it's like, hey, summarize the Trinity in one paragraph. You're like, yeah, that's easy. No problem. So here he's summarizing the gospel in one sentence, the birth of Jesus leaving. Here's, here's what we need to understand. The gospel is this, Jesus leaving the throne, perfection, where he is honored and adored, coming to earth as a baby. Then living a normal human life, 
where he never sins. And what does he do with that perfection? Does he stand up and be worshiped for it? No, he gets condemned and sent to the cross. And he dies our death because of our sin. Perfection, he took upon himself the sins of humanity. Dies three days later. Gets put in a grave. Three days later, he rises again. And then he's on earth for 40 days. And then he ascends to the throne of where he is right now. He won the victory here on earth. When you read this, this section, which is verse 7 through 12, it automatically should push you to the story in Luke 10. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he's like, go, go out, preach the gospel, and heal the sick. They're like, okay. Cast out demons. They're like, sure. And then they come back and they're like, what? Jesus, you know what you said? It's actually true. We did it. We actually healed people. We actually cast out demons. We told people about you and they want to follow you. This is amazing. And verse, eight, or verse 10, or sorry, verse 18 in chapter 10, it says, don't rejoice in those things for I saw Satan be thrown down. In this text, 7 through 12, we see that he is thrown down. Do you know that it's, it's stated six times in this passage, this one chapter? Six times he uses the word thrown down. Do you know what's really cool? If you're, if you're kind of like a, a, um, a Greek word nerd, um, What's really cool is the word that they use there is bounced, which is really interesting because I sometimes I like to watch videos of funny things. And, and so um, people, people sometimes get thrown out of places by bouncers. And I just recently watched one because it was a former like heavyweight boxer. And this guy's like, just like, you know, being really big and tough and this, this bouncer is big and tough. <laughs> like, like he's terrifying. And and he's just like walking around. You can't hear anything, but you can see he's just like yelling and throwing things. And then he finally comes at him like this. And then the bouncer just steps into him. And the guy just is like. Chow. And so when I thought of bounced, that's what I thought of. I was like, the guy got bounced. <laughs> he got bounced by Jesus out of heaven. It says, it says in this passage that the dragon is dethroned from heaven. And here's the cool thing. When we are in Christ, we are enthroned in heaven. So we are enthroned in heaven. Scene three, the defeated foe. This is so interesting. It's this whole passage of what happens to, to the enemy after he gets bounced. He gets bounced out of heaven and then he is angry. And it says, he, it says in verse 12 that he knows his time is short. And if your time is short, what are you going to do? Well, all he can do is chase the children of the child. So it says that he's going to make the life of the church hard. Church, we need to toughen up. 
I need to toughen up. We are in a real battle. It's not against whoever you think it might be. Put their name there. We don't battle flesh and blood. If you hate Trudeau and think he's the problem, he's not, he, no, I'm just kidding. He's not the problem. Behind him is the problem. Satan is the problem. This defeated enemy hates Christ. And because he hates Christ, he hates you and I. He's coming after us as his church. It says it right here. He's a defeated foe. Do you know that when Nazi Germany was falling, and it was clear almost from 1943 that they had lost the war, Hitler refused to give any ground. He thought he somehow had a Messiah complex, that, that somehow it was going to align, and he was going to be able to be victorious and take over the world. But you know, when he was the defeated foe, he was actually his most dangerous. They had this, they had this plot to kill him named Valkyrie. There were about, about 7,000 people that were a part of it. By the end of his life, so they literally are bombing and moving into Berlin, and one of his last acts is to sign the death of 4,000 of them, of these guys who plotted to kill Hitler. A defeated foe sometimes is a nasty foe because they understand that they have nothing to lose and they are going to scorch earth on you. We need to be aware that we are in a real battle. We don't have to be afraid because Christ is with us. He is, he is actually the victory. And so the enemy has no power over those who are in Christ, but we actually have to stand in Christ and stand in his authority, not just sit back and eat cake in our churches and feel good that we're somehow okay. This enemy, he knows his time is short. Can I tell you this? The devil knows the gospel and he knows the end of it is that he loses. It says one more time in Revelation that he gets bounced from earth to hell. He knows that day is coming. And so he works with such audacity, such anger, such hatred to destroy the churches, to destroy God's people, to take our children down. Church, we have to wake up. We're being lulled to sleep. We're being lulled to sleep in the four walls of churches. And we need to stand up and realize that there is a battle going on. Now the three practical things that we can take from this passage. Do you know that the devil has not changed his schemes? He has three of them. And so here are the three tactics that the enemy takes primarily in the lives of those who follow Christ. Number one, accuser. Verse 10, labels him as the accuser who stands before God and accuses day and night. This is his number one tactic. And you know this because you live it. Most of us struggle with something in our life because of a wound or because of a word. Think about it. There's been a wound in our life that has spoken something into us or we've had somebody who's spoken a word over us and we feel it every time we go to step out for the Lord. I can tell you this is true. Every time 
man, I, <laughs> uh, going, going to speak at, at the graduation, I brought, my mom was uh, really cool and, and uh, she saved every report card I ever had. So my wife started reading them. She's like, wow, I should have got, you should have given me this before we got married is her exact words. I don't know if that was like, because I would have known you more or because I might have changed my answer. But I remember so often there being different words spoken over me. I can remember this one specifically. Grade seven, we were reading about our changing bodies. I've shared this before. And my teacher, who's a great man, is still there, and we had a great conversation, and, and I don't hold anything against him, but I was just, I was kind of a silly, crazy, rambunctious boy. Um, and I just, I just had a hard time with, with school. And so I sat there, and he goes, I'm, I'm reading this book. We're supposed to go around and read the book. You remember that in class? Paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. So there I go, I read it. And I'm so nervous. I hated reading in public. And I'm stumbling over my words. And he's like, Alex, stop it. You're acting like an idiot. And I'm like, you know, you feel it, right? And every time I sit down to read or to prepare a message, you know what voice I hear? It's not that teacher that speaks it. It's the enemy who brings it up and goes, are you serious? You think you can do this? You don't have what it takes. Like better men than you have tried to understand revelation. Good luck. (laughs) But how many of you have done that? How many of you do that? You know, God calls you to something and then you sit there and you hear the voice of the accuser. Do you know an accusation has zero, zero power unless you agree with it? I watched this video and it was interesting. This person yells at this individual some really nasty words. And this person, it's a female, and she like cringes. And then he says, I don't even know who you are. Why would you care what I think? And this other person comes up and in a different language starts lacing them down. And they're subtitles. And so you're reading it. You're like, whoa, I shouldn't even read these words. Um, And the person's like, goes, That person said almost the exact same thing as I did, but because you didn't understand the words, it had zero power in your life. There are accusations that you believe and you agree with, and so they have power in your life. You need to align yourself with the truth of Scripture. Here's three of the greatest lies that the enemy speaks to us. the the accusations he makes against us. He says this, you are a sinner. Are you kidding me? You can do nothing for the kingdom. Number two, you lack maturity. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. If people knew, good luck. Number three, you are unqualified. You are not good enough and you know it. And all of those are absolutely true when you stand in your own righteousness. Revelation 12, 10 said that they overcame by the blood of the lamb. Do you understand the power of the blood of the lamb? That lamb washed away your sins. It washed away not just your sins, but your unrighteousness and brought in a righteousness. It took you from death and brought you into life. 
We need to align ourselves, not with the voice of the accuser, the one who hates us. We need to align ourselves with the voice of our Savior and our Lord and live our lives according to what he says about us. Amen? We are powerless when we align ourselves with the accusations of the devil. We are in a war. Why would we listen to the voice of the enemy? Number two. Deceit. This is one of the primary roles and tools of the devil. He uses it to do two things. One, to lead you astray. Two, to divide the church. False doctrine is a real problem. This is where we need to know the word of God. It's not enough to come on Sundays and just get told what to believe. That's the same problem Israel had. They wanted Moses to go to the mountain because God was too scary. So we just want to go to somebody who just can tell us what to believe. No, we go to the word of God to inform us, to allow the spirit of God to, to teach us what it means to follow him. False doctrine is real and we need to address it. And here's what false doctrine is. Believing something about God that is untrue. And not just mentally believing it, but actually feeling it deep down. Statements like this are false doctrine. I know it doesn't say that, but it just feels wrong. If you make statements that doesn't allow scripture to be scripture, but allows your feeling to trump scripture, you're in trouble. We do not live above scripture telling it what to say. We live under scripture allowing it to dictate how we live. This has been something that has happened throughout the ages. You look, the first century church dealt with it. People came in and they said, hey, That's great you got Jesus, but we need to add Moses, circumcision and Jesus. It's great. You need to follow the law and Jesus. No. You follow Christ, and through following Christ, you obey the law. But the law doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Then you see this. You see this in modern history. The Nazi Bible. Do you know the Nazi Bible? They literally tried to take everything Jewish out of it. Uh Excuse me? Who's left? (laughs) A donkey? Like. (laughs) Have you ever seen the Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson. He loved the Bible. Thought it was amazing. He just had a little bit of issue with the supernatural parts. Again, what is left? The slave Bible. Do you know that they tried to take out parts because they really wanted, um, slave owners wanted to take out parts that made made people equal. You can look it up. You can go to the the. Uh, Museum of the Bible in America and be able to see these Bibles. They actually are there. And it's nothing new. We call it something new now. We always think that there's new things, but there's nothing new under the sun. We call it deconstruction. But all they're taking out is just things that they can't rationalize 
or doesn't feel good, a God that they can't rationalize or feel warm and fuzzies about, then they want to deconstruct it. And don't get me wrong, there are things within the Western church that need to be deconstructed. But this, the truth of Scripture, orthodox doctrine is not something we deconstruct. We submit to it and it informs our lives. They overcame by the blood of their lamb and by the word of their testimony. Do we know the power of the blood of the lamb? Do you understand? Do I understand? And in these four walls, I get it, whatever number of walls these are, but we get the gospel. I'm saying in real life, in real time, do we understand the power of what Christ Jesus has done for us? Not just a ticket to heaven, but an absolute transformation of our lives. Do we understand that we are no longer dead, but we're alive in Christ Jesus? Do we understand that we are not a slave to sin any longer, but a slave to righteousness? Do we understand that we are the righteousness of Christ, that he actually clothed us in his righteousness? Do we understand the blood of the lamb, what he did for us, what that means for us here and now, not just in the future, but here and now. And then this, they overcame by the word of their testimony. Do you know what he has done for you? Too often I sit down with teenagers and they say, I don't know. Tell me your testimony. I don't know. No, 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 no. You do. If you know Christ Jesus, you know it. Because here's the truth. We're always like, oh, I don't have a testimony. I didn't deal drugs or shoot somebody, so what do I have? No, no, no. That is not the power of the testimony. The power of the testimony is that we were lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ Jesus saved us from a life of sin, and now we are free of our sin. And that's true of the greatest sinner, or that's true of somebody who feels as though they are close to the line. We are all sinners. There is no great sin that makes you out of God's will. There is no half-decent sin that keeps you close to him. No, no, no. We are sinners, and we need a Savior. This is Christ Jesus. Do you know what he's done for you? Do you know that you are saved, covered by the blood of Jesus, empowered to live the life that he has for you? Then finally, and probably the most powerful tool the devil uses, death. Again, he is red because he is being pictured as covered in blood, powerful, intimidating, full of hate and anger. Man, have we not watched a world that is terrified of death the last two years? We have made decision upon decision because we are captivated by the life we live. We are just hoping that we could have more of what we have here. And church, we're no different. We are lulled to sleep by our comforts. We love the things of this world. 
We love the things of, of this modern world around us. And I would say at the heart of it, none of us would say this. None of us would ever say this. But at the heart of it, this is a wake-up call to me. I'm not preaching at you. Jesus has been preaching to me and hopefully with us today. That we actually think that heaven might just be a little bit better than this. We don't realize that heaven is much better. And this cannot even begin to compare to the goodness of heaven and intimacy that we will have with God. We are in love with our comforts and it is suffocating us and putting us to sleep, church. I'm preaching to myself. We need to be like the saints of old who are not afraid of death like the church that is not in Western civilization, that is willing to stand up for the gospel and say that they will give their life to following. I am humbled when I hear people stand up and say that they made a decision to Christ knowing that everyone in their family would disown them. Knowing that it would cost them their possible life. Church, we're being lulled to sleep in our comforts, in our air-conditioned churches, I had this thought. What would the North American church look like if our air conditioning's just all broke? It's laughable, but it's sad. If, if we had to sit in a room where we were sweating, would we go, come to church? Are we willing to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God? Would we give our lives for the gospel? There's an alarm clock going off and it's, it's Revelation 12. It's saying, wake up church. This is a spiritual battle and it's not a battle that you have to win. It's a battle that's already been won, but you need to know that it's not over. We are standing in the in-between season where Christ has won the victory, but we are still here. And the enemy for some reason has authority to roam the earth and attack. And we need to stand in the authority of Christ and know that we have the victory to stand in. I'm not telling you that you are hopeless. The hope is Christ Jesus. But I'm telling you that we live in a real world and the enemy has been free to be able to go about and attack around us. And we need to be the ambassadors of Christ that go around as his warriors and make a difference for the kingdom of God. You know, one of the worst lies that we've been believing is this in the North American church is that you should not share your testimony with anyone. You should just keep it to yourself. That is a deception of the enemy. You are ambassadors of Christ. He is making his request through you. I wouldn't have picked us to be the ambassadors. I would have picked better people. But thank you, Jesus, that he picks broken people. Literally, he picks people who can't read and he spreads the gospel through them. Praise Jesus that he has picked each one of us. And so let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to invite us. Invite us to an awakening. The alarm clock is sounding. 
Are we going to hit the snooze button? Are we going to hit the snooze button with whatever TV show we're used to or movie or whatever we're so caught up in that the enemy is using to lull us to sleep? I'm going to invite you, if you're ready to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to answer the call, the alarm. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. Nobody's looking around. This is between you and the Lord. But church, are you willing to stand up, answer that alarm bell and say, the war is real and I will stand in Christ Jesus because the victory has already been won. And I want to see my loved ones serve in Jesus. I want to see my loved ones turning back to him. I want to see my friends knowing Jesus. I want to see the church across North America fall on their knees and worship Jesus. I want to see people saved in the streets. Not so we can get a political party and we can get, you know, power this way or that way. That's not the point of the kingdom. The point of the kingdom is lives transformed. If that's you, go ahead and just raise your hand and say, I'm here. Jesus, you see us. More importantly than the outward expression, you see our hearts. But so often, if we can't make an outward expression, how do we walk it out in the real world? You've given us the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Forgive us for listening to the voice of the accuser. I pray right now for every person in here that those uh, accusations would be exposed in the name of Jesus and your truth would come and like a scalpel would cut them away. Lord, I pray for those who are in here that have believed the deceit and the division of the enemy. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would speak your truth and they would submit to your truth. And then, Lord, we are, I am, so afraid of death, not realizing what you have for us in eternity, that we have nothing to fear. Death is a defeated foe. I pray in this place that you would raise up men and women that would not love their life so much that they would be afraid to step out in courage for you. In Jesus' name, amen.